This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Pick up in Romans 5 today and hope to get into Romans 6. I don't know that I'm going to get to um, Romans 9 and 10. I think we only have two more sessions left, and I do want to get into 7 and a little bit of 8. So the Jewish connection may have to wait for another time. Mm -hmm. But I will give you a hint. If you read Romans 9, 10, and 11 and... Think about some of the predictions that Paul makes there and then couple that with the spirit of prophecy and what she says about Jewish people in the end of time. I think you'll arrive at some very fascinating conclusions. I will give you another hint. The mark of the beast will not necessarily stand on its own without the context of anti-Semitism. So you can think about that. All right. I would love to get into that, but those of you who came early get the hints. All right. We're just kind of waiting around here for the time to start. Anybody have a question or something you want to ask about before I get started? Something that we've covered? Yes, please. I'll repeat just what I just said. Yeah. Yeah. If you read Romans um, 9 and 10 and 11, and you read it thoughtfully and carefully, and you watch the predictions that Paul makes, and you couple that with the predictions about what Ellen White says about the Jewish people, and you'll understand that there's going to be a great revival among Jewish people at the end of time, and... uh, I'm not so sure it's not going to be a parallel movement that will not merge with the third angel's message. And she talks about them energizing the church. And the church today could sure stand some energizing. Um, And that God's, God never is defeated. On the cross hung a Jewish man because it was God's purposes to bring the gospel to the Gentile through the Jewish uh, people. So even though it appears sometimes that Satan triumphs, he does not triumph. And, um, and then I, I don't have time to get into the parallel movement of Zionism, but Zionism, with much of the evangelical Christianity, they think that's the actual fulfillment of the prophecies, and it's not. Because the fulfillment of the prophecies are based on the if, and the if is used all through Deuteronomy. And it's based on a revival and a reformation. But both Paul and Ellen White predict a returning of the Jewish people to the Savior. And when they return to the Savior, they will also bring Sabbath with them. And then I think we're all going to get clumped in together in the end of time. And the last mark of the beast will be a movement against anybody that's considered to be Jewish. And if you don't eat unclean foods and you keep the seventh-day Sabbath, 
I'm telling you, this thing could come like that. And that whole Zionist movement, I'm not against Israel, I'm not against all that. But they could be do some things that could turn. Right now, that exists because of the backing of the United States of America. If you don't believe that, then you need to do a little research on that. And uh, you let the population of the United States turn in another direction. It could be very interesting. i got a lot of things to say about it, but I'm not going to say them now. That gives you something to do some study on your own. But read carefully. <clears throat> she says, all right, my clock says it's that time to start, so let's, uh, let's plunge in by the grace of God, and let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we pray that you will be our teacher and our helper. Thank you for these great and mighty promises that we have. May we understand it fully and completely. And may we understand that we're living in the end of time. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, <clears throat> left off yesterday with Romans 5, uh, 1 to 5. But one thing I did not talk about, it, I did not talk about Jesus the substitute. And I want to talk about that. A lot of people have a hard time understanding how Jesus becomes our substitute. <clears throat> and I want to give an illustration. I don't like where I get the illustration. But it provides a good a good point. If you look in chapter 5 and you look at verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this Lord Jesus Christ who now becomes our substitute? I've already told you he became, he was able to stand in our place because he's worth more than all of us put together. Isn't that right? It's worth more than the whole universe because he's the creator. It's not one human life for another human life. It's the creator's life for the creation. And so therefore he adds value and he can become our substitute. That's why an angel could not take the place on Calvary's cross because an angel is, is not the creator. Christ alone is the creator. But he also becomes our substitute. You need, in order for us to have a substitute, we must understand a couple of things. One is that Adam, Adam did not create us. Adam was created. Nevertheless, we all came from Adam. Is that not true? Every human being can trace their ancestry, male and female, back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam was, um, and I know this is a big controversy in some places. It ought not to be. You ought to be able to read the Bible and figure this out pretty quick. But Adam was charged with a leadership role of being the leader of his family. He's the, the head of his family. And, uh, and Eve was charged with being his helpmeet, his corresponding one. And um, that also maintained itself after the fall. Some people say, well, there's no headship, uh, no male headship before the fall. And I smile and I want to say, hmm. Let me go to what happened at the fall and just ask a couple of questions. This is a little side journey, so you can, you can do what you want to do with this. But uh, it all figures in. You'll see my point in just a moment. And it figures into chapter 5 of the book of Romans. And uh, so let me ask a question. Was there gardening before the fall? Yes or no? Yes. So one of the curses was on the, on the growing. Is that true? One of the curses was on childbearing. Would there have been babies before the fall? Last time I checked, you got a man and a woman, you're going to have babies. 
before the fall. So the curse was on the childbearing issue. Well, there's only one more thing that God cursed. I say God cursed. I'll explain that in a moment. But that was on the relationship between the man and the woman. So was there, if there was headship after the fall, is there headship before the fall? The answer to that is yes. So what did the fall do? All the fall did was interject pain into what God had already established. So the big problem that we have in the current world and the culture that we live in is that it's rebellion against the divine order that was set up in Genesis. God knew what he was doing when he set up male and female. And uh, if men want to understand the role that they're to play in the leadership of their home, uh, in the church and so forth, they need to read Ephesians 5, where the model for male leadership is given by Jesus himself. And the Apostle Paul says that Christ so loved the church that he gave his life for it. So men should so love their families in the leadership role that they're ready to give their life for their wives and their children. Uh, that's a divine picture. And what God created in the beginning has never been overthrown, and it never will be overthrown, no matter how badly people try to overthrow it. Women, by the way, were also given a leadership role. Leadership is influence. Nothing less, nothing more. So what did I say? Leadership is influence. Nothing less, nothing more. And that comes from John Maxwell, who's pretty good authority on leadership. So what role did God give women leadership role? He gave it with the children. I tell the men, I said, God put her in a position with the children, a position of influence. That men, you have influence in your home and you have influence with the children, but you don't have the influence that the mother has over the children. And God put her there to shape each next generation. So... If you don't, I tell people, well, if you don't like that, just read the book itself. You know, you can argue with God who created us. And those are the exact arguments that Paul uses, by the way, over in Timothy, and I'm not getting into that argument. But I want to come back to the, the other argument here that deals with our salvation. So Adam now becomes the one from whom we all come from. Am I right? Trace your ancestry back to Adam. And <clears throat> so in order, to, if, our, if that Adam falls, and he did, and all of us are affected by his fall, and we are, chapter 5, then in order to, to reverse that, you have to have a second Adam, or a last Adam, or another Adam. There's only one more Adam, and he's the last Adam. He's the second Adam, and he's the last Adam. And the only place you can find that Adam is to find it in the Godhead. Because Adam, when you get to Adam in the genealogy, and it says an Adam was the son of God. So the only place you can go is the Godhead to find another Adam. And since Jesus was 
the creator, and he created Adam, he could become the second Adam. You understand? Because Adam came from him, and we all came from Adam. He created him. You still with me? So, but there's another qualification. In order to be a second Adam, you not only had to be the source of the whole human race, you also had to be human. So when Jesus became a baby in Bethlehem's manger, he qualified to be the second Adam. And he qualified to become our substitute. Now, what does substitute mean? I'm going to give you the illustration. I don't like where I get it from, but I'm going to get it because people can identify with it, use it. Have you ever seen a sports fanatic? You know, don't point at anybody and don't look at them. You know what a sports fanatic does or or enthusiast or or whatever you want to call them. You know, they're, they're at work. They're at work on Friday, and they tell their the person they're working with, you know, our team's going to beat your team. We're, we're going to beat the daylights out of you. And they're saying, no, our team's going to win, and we're going to beat the daylights out of you, <clears throat> whatever they say. And then, of course, they go to the game. They probably got their face painted. They stand up in the chairs, and they yell and scream, and maybe they stand on their head, and they wave banners. <clears throat> or they're sitting in front of the television. <clears throat> And when their team is winning, they're jumping up out and shouting at the television. Not that the television can hear them. But <clears throat> they're shouting at the television and cheering. And, and then when their team is losing, they go into depression. And... So what's happening here? Oh, they go to work on Monday morning. And they said, I told you, I told you we were going to beat you. And we beat the daylights out of you. Didn't you see what we we, we never touch the ball. Follow what I'm saying? So what's going on here? That's right. We're talking about substitution. This person, whoever they are, has put their faith in a ball team. And am I right? Whatever kind of ball team it is. And they have attach their affections to this ball team. Is that a fair statement? I think it's a real fair statement. And whatever happens to the ball team now happens to them. So if the ball team loses, they go into depression. If the ball team wins, they're they're exhilarated. I want to tell you I pity the the illustration, but you get the point. Put your faith in Christ as your substitute. Attach your affections to him. You will never, ever be disappointed. He's able to bring you through. He's able. Now, I'll tell you that a lot of people are substituting ball teams for Jesus. I thought I'd throw that in. That's the big idol worship in our world today. But I, anyway, that's a different subject. But you get the point. So this Jesus in Romans chapter 5 is the great substitute. 
He becomes the second Adam. Now, for sake of, sake of time, I'm going to uh, skip. I, I, I'd love to, to do all of these things, but let me skip down just a little bit here. Let me go down to verse 8 of chapter 5. You have your Bibles. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were still in rebellion against God. And I want to say this. There's one thing that God will never tolerate. And I'll say it again, maybe. Because a lot of people think that they can do this, that, or the other and still have the covering. But Jesus will never tolerate rebellion in your life. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But, um, but God demonstrated his love for us by sending his only begotten son to Calvary's cross to become our substitute in order to demonstrate his love. If you want to see God's love, you look at Calvary's cross. Now, I can't understand all the pain and the suffering that's in the world. And there's a lot of pain and suffering. I can't explain all of that. But there's only one thing that will ever explain the unexplainable. And that's to look at Calvary's cross and see what God did in demonstrating his love for us. If you're ever tempted to doubt doubt the love of God, it's the cross of Calvary that makes the love of God a certainty in our lives. And that's why I said yesterday, as Seventh-day Adventists, young people, older people, we should not be afraid to die. Why? We have a substitute. And we have somebody that can bring us out of the grave. I didn't say we wanted to die. We have somebody that can triumph over death in the grave. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? That shout is given. We all like to live. We'd like to live. And I believe many will live to see Jesus come. Let's go back down to verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. I talked already about the judicial anger of God and about the fear of God. I don't know what you took out of that, but I want to say again, the fear of God is not a popular subject, and yet it's all through the New Testament. As I said yesterday, the three angels' message starts out with fear of God, and it's the everlasting gospel. And I explained that what God is doing is warning us and letting us all know it was the first lesson he taught Eve. She gave it back to Satan when Satan says, look at this fruit. She says, God has told us that the day we eat it, we what? That was God putting the fear of God in Eve. And what he was saying to her is, Eve, you have to understand that sin will cause me to bring justice. And I will do it. Not because I enjoy doing it, but because I have to deport to preserve the universe. I want to say this, that out of God's love flows both his mercy and his justice. His mercy saves us from our sins, but his justice in destroying the wicked in the end of time preserves the universe. You with me? And the reason it preserves the universe is because God's law is not arbitrary. God's law is not something he just made up and says, you know, I kind of like these rules. I think I'll, I'll imply them. God's, God's law is absolutely necessary for the survival of life. Life, you might say in one sense, organization is life. When your body becomes disorganized, it what? 
it dies. And the reason that evolution is being shaken to its core today is because they understand that the three trillion cells have a physician here, so I don't know if I got the three trillion right or not, but um, the trillions of cells in your body are all of them, every one of those cells is busier than New York City. And it's highly organized. So when, when death comes, the body becomes disorganized. It's God's laws that bring organization to the universe and make life possible. And uh, so that's why those laws are not arbitrary. Okay, coming down to uh, a little bit more here. Let me, let me skip down because I want to get into, ver- into chapter 6. And chapter 5 is loaded and it's become um, sometimes controversial. But let me go to uh, verse 15. For the free gift that comes through Christ is not like the offense that came through the first Adam. For if one man's offense, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For judgment came from that one offense resulted in condemnation. The whole human race is under a curse. But the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned through one, much more who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as the one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And that last verse is a more clear verse of what Paul... But he's saying saying the same thing over and over and over and over so that we can get it. And... um, so let me, let me ask you, let's, let's compare the failure of Adam to the victory of Christ. Let's, let's compare that for just a moment. How easy is it, if I, if I put a nice big glass of water here, how easy would it be to pollute that glass? If I reached down to the ground and picked up some dirt and dropped it in there and then said, would you drink it? What would your answer be? No, thank you. Why? Because the whole glass is now what? Polluted, and it only took how many acts to do it? One act. So we are all basically hurt by Adam's failure. By the way, the New Testament does not blame Eve for the fall. It blames Adam for the fall. And the devil's work was not done that day when he got Eve to fall. He had to get Adam to fall. And the reason for that was is that Adam was the leader. And he doesn't bring down the whole planet Earth and the future generations until he brings down Adam. And that's why the Apostle Paul makes it clear that Adam's sin, Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned knowing full well what he was doing. Let me talk about that just for a moment. 
Absolutely. Um, This whole chapter 5 reaffirms the fact that what Jesus did was he recaptured Adam's um, office. That's when he became the second Adam. On Calvary's cross, he undid what Adam did. And that's why when Jesus and Adam meet in the new earth, Adam kneels at Jesus' feet. Jesus restores to him the garden, restores to him everything he lost. But Adam takes his crown and puts it at the feet of Jesus, falls at the feet of Jesus in worship. Why? Because Jesus undid everything that Adam did in that one act. If I take a glass of water and I pollute that glass with one act and you're not going to drink it, let me ask a question. How hard would it be to get it pure again? Is it easier to pollute it than to make it pure? How much difference? There's a lot more work to get it pure again than it is to make it dirty. Is that right? That's how much greater, in a sense, that Christ's act on Calvary's cross was for all of us. And one act, Jesus makes it possible for all of us to have salvation and to undo in every human being what sin and the devastation has done. In one act, in one gift to every human being. Now, I know sometimes that there are debates on the word justification, but the Bible says that justification resulted in it. And you have to always look at the context and how justification is used. Um, and what, what Jesus did, and some people feel, and I say the sweet kindness, you may be one of those. If you do, I still love you and I hope you still love me that some people feel like that God justified every human being and that they have to reject Jesus in order to be saved. I do not think that every human being was justified. There are some who think that God only provided salvation for those who would be saved. I reject that too because I believe that God provided salvation for every human being whether they accept it or not. God is lavish in his love. and There is no excuse for anybody to ever say that they were lost because God did not provide salvation for them. He provided it for you. If you're lost, he still provided it for you. Um, But he made it possible now for you to choose again. What he did is restored the freedom of choice to us. And now you can choose once again your own master. By the way, you don't have three choices in life, only two. Only two. You cannot choose to serve yourself and say, I'm okay. If you choose to serve yourself, you're serving the devil. You can only choose to serve the Lord Jesus or the devil. That's it. And it's either the devil will take 10% of your service because he'll know he'll get the other 90%. Jesus refuses to take 90%. He insists on 100% of your service. You understand. You see that again in in chapter 6. Well, let me come back again to this picture here that we have of of Adam. I want to think, I think it's best explained by the prodigal son. You know the story, so I'm not going to tell you the story. But here's my question. 
When was the prodigal son forgiven? When was he forgiven? When he what? When he, when he left home? That's, that's usually the answer that I usually get. When he came to his senses? That's another answer that I get. Before he left home? I have an answer for you. You may not like it, but let me explain it so that you don't leap off too quick. The prodigal son was forgiven the day he was born. Now listen carefully. I didn't say he experienced forgiveness. I said forgiveness was in the father's heart. Let me ask parents here. When you bring a baby into the world, or in our case we adopted two, do you have any guarantee that that child will grow up and not break your heart at times? That that child will not do things that will disappoint you? You know that, right when you hold that little baby. Remember holding my daughter in my arms or seeing her for the first time, that little pink cap, and uh, looking into her face and wondering what the future would hold? I would like to suggest to you that because of your love for that child, you've already got forgiveness in your heart. Am I right? I didn't say indulgence. I said forgiveness. So that's in the heart, but it doesn't mean that the child necessarily will experience that forgiveness until the child comes home. So when did the prodigal son experience forgiveness? Only when he comes back and asks for forgiveness. You with me? If he, he could have stayed in the pig pen the rest of his life, am I right? And he could have never experienced the father's forgiveness and been lost in the pig pen. There's countless millions of people that will never come home to the father's love. And they will never come home to the father's forgiveness. And they refuse to experience the father's forgiveness. The father will not push his forgiveness on you. He will not, he will not force forgiveness on you because he cannot do that. It's a two-way street. But he has provided at Calvary's cross forgiveness for every one of us. He's provided justification already. He's provided the ability to wipe out my sins forever and to cast them into the depths of the sea. He's provided a power to overcome my carnal nature. He's provided power to help me to become the kind of person that can stand without a mediator before Jesus comes. And now I want to tell you the difference between Baptist theology, nothing picking on the Baptist. I could say evangelical. And I love our Baptist friends, so it's not about that kind of a thing. And Adventist theology. Because many Adventists today are running back to evangelical theology because they forget the unique role that God has called us to and where we're headed. And why we have a unique message on Christ our righteousness in the end of time. And here's why. And here's what we're up against. If you, and I could get into chapter 6, and this kind of affects chapter 6 in a sense. I'm watching time and I'm just going for broke here. So I've kind of left, uh, you'll have to follow, get caught up here at some point and, uh, and that sort of thing. But let me, let me kind of go for, for broke here. Um, in in, in uh, evangelical theology, um, and I explained yesterday that we have a grace in which we stand. I use David, um, David's experience and how when he premeditatively um, chose to 
disobey God's Ten Commandments, that he, had he died at that point, he would have been lost. But then I said what? Anybody remember what I said next? Quickly. But behold, the grace of God. Because God, David was still standing in God's grace. At that moment he had died, he'd been lost. But God's grace is bigger. And here's how God's grace worked. God's grace kept David alive. God's grace raised up Nathan the prophet. God's grace sent the Holy Spirit. And God's grace brought him back to repentance. Hallelujah. The devil would have killed him. It would have killed him. God is intending on saving you by his grace and his power. Thank God for his grace. It's bigger than we think it is. But it's not an indulgent grace. Okay, i got to come back. In evangelical theology, and some of them have this once saved, always saved, and I understand that. I'm not talking about that right now. But, you know, you... You sinned and God's brought you back by his grace, hallelujah, and you die. Okay, how, and then you're saved in the kingdom. Use David as the example. How does that differ from what Adventist, the message Adventists have to bear? Here's the difference. We are facing now the close of human probation. We are going to have to have a generation who comes to the place, not that God's grace alone can bring them back and forgive them and restore them, but in addition to that, they have to come to the place they will not sin again. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? That's why God has called, that's why God raised up the prophetic gift, and that's why God raised up the Adventist church is because we are commissioned with a a mission by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to prepare a generation who will stand at the close of probation. Because if you sin after the close of probation, there is no mediator to bring you back. When, When mercy folds her wings and Jesus stops his intercession, the only reason you can be brought, the only reason David could be brought back was because of the intercession of Jesus. The only reason that I'm brought back after my own failures is because of the ministration of Jesus. But folk, we're living in a place when, when that administration, that, that ministry of Jesus, that is going to cease. I didn't invent this. The book of Revelation invented it. And, and the Bible says... He that is filthy, let him be, and let him who is holy be. There comes a lock in. And so God has to have a people. Now, I know people make fun of this, and they laugh about it, and they get on the Internet, and blah, blah, blah. Let them do whatever they want to do. And let me tell you, when probation closes, you have to have the recovering of Christ's righteousness and such a dependence on him and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, that you will not sin. Amen. Or you cannot be ready to meet Jesus in the clouds of glory. That's a frightening thing to think about, but it shouldn't be frightening in another sense. We have a mighty Savior. Amen. 
Do you think the Savior who gave us Christ our righteousness to cover us is able to take us through the time of trouble and the close of probation? Is he able to take a poor, pitiful human being like me who has a sinful nature and he's able to hold me by his mighty hands, to lock me in and hold me there by his grace because my will has become so submissive to him that it will not change its mind. So covered I am, so surrendered I am. To have Christ's righteousness means submissiveness. Submissiveness is a bad word nowadays, but submissiveness is a good word in the proper context. We must become so submissive to Christ. And I tell you now the secret of that. If you get nothing else out of this and take this home, but I, I uh, and it's one of the toughest battles you'll fight. But you can conquer in Christ. We all can conquer in Christ. Because I'm a fellow struggler. Don't look at me and say, you look at Christ. But I'll tell you what the secret is. The secret is a constant communion with God. It's a constant surrender to the will of God. The reason Daniel came out of the lion's den, listen to the king, as he gives that mournful cry, Oh, Daniel, was your God, whom you constantly serve, able to deliver you from the mouth of the lions? And you know the answer. It's that constant dependence on the righteousness of Christ. It's that constant surrender to the will of Christ. It's not my robe that I want. It's his robe that I want. And what that, does that mean? If I'm, going to be surround, if I'm going to be covered with the robe of Christ, it means that I'm surrendered to his will. I'm surrendered to his will on how I use my time. I'm surrendered to his will on what I do. This is not legalism. This is surrender to the will of Christ. And that's why that second Adam means so much to us. Now let me, let me share something. Since I talked about Adam's leadership role, I talked a little bit about the lady's leadership role in this. Let me give you a beautiful picture here. Jesus becomes the second Adam. When he dies on the cross and he redeems us. So ladies, listen up to this. Men too. He is the second Adam. He's the second Adam, and he is also the seed of the woman. Because both fulfill their leadership roles. Mary fulfills her leadership role by raising Jesus by the grace of God. And Jesus fulfills his role. So when he dies, is resurrected, he comes forth from that grave for salvation for the entire human race as both the second Adam and the seed of the woman. So both male and female have great roles to play. So as you give guidance to your children, your grandchildren, ladies, and use your influence, influence is huge. All right, let me go now. Any questions on that before I slip away, uh, Greg? Because I want to go down to chapter 6 for whatever... Yeah. And we talk about, towards the end of time, having to rely on Christ. And people confuse 
Yeah, I, let, me, let me say this. Um, Ellen White says this, and I've tried to look for it to find it, and I haven't found it back, but I know she said it. It's good, even if she didn't say it. <laughs> I'm sure she said it, though. We may not be perfect this side of heaven, but we may have perfect hearts. Let me explain, in a sense, what that means. I have a carnal nature. Carnal nature is not the sin. Carnal nature is the temptation. Sin is when I yield to it. So until Jesus translates me or I come up from the grave, remember I said yesterday, if you come up with a carnal nature, you came up in the wrong resurrection. You want to come up out of that grave without the carnal nature by the grace of God. You leave it in the grave. It dies. If it dies in your life now, and I'm, going to explain, I'm about ready to explain that in chapter 6, then it's not coming up in the resurrection. If you're buried with Christ now, it's not coming up in the resurrection. But I still have it. And even after the close of probation, I still have the carnal nature. I, in, in, in a certain sense, I cannot be said that I'm perfect. But I can have a perfect heart, and I have, can have perfect submission to the Lord Jesus, despite the carnalness of my being. Um, all right, let me, go, let me go to chapter 6. There's a lot we could talk about. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. That's in chapter 5. But let me tell you, that's not an indulgent grace. It's just simply saying that even though this terrible, horrible thing of sin that's infected us all, the grace is far stronger to be able to, to deliver us than the sin is to destroy us. And that's good news. Okay, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in chapter 1, uh, verse 1? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is, certainly not, God forbid. How shall we who died to sin uh, live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been, this is the the power verse, if we have been united together in the likeness of his Christ's death, certainly we shall be united in the likeness, or we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Let me give you a quick picture of that. Here, I, here's a poor sinner, and I'm standing in front of the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments convicts me of sin. So how do I die? I die in repentance. I die in sorrow for my sins. It's only in repentance that I die, and when I die... I die with Christ because on Calvary's cross he took my carnal nature and he killed it on Calvary's cross. He nailed it to Calvary's cross. Now I know there's big, I don't have time to get into all of that, but just let me say this. There's the people who say Jesus had the nature of Adam before he fell, and there are people who say he has the nature of Jesus after, I mean the nature of Adam after he fell. Uh, Usually sometimes when you see these two camps do like this, there's usually, there's usually that elliptical thing with the truth, uh, two points of truth that are in tension to one another. And I'm going to tell you what I believe, because I believe what the Bible says. Jesus was like us, 
And Jesus was different than us. He was like us in that he got his human nature from whom? Including her fallen nature. I don't see how anybody can escape that. But he was different from us. In that he got his character from his father. So in a sense, Jesus has both. He wraps his perfect character with humanity. And he never yielded once to its temptations. And he took it to Romans chapter 6 is clear. That verse is as clear as a bell. Jesus killed my carnal nature on Calvary's cross. And when I repent in sackcloth and ashes, then I take the carnal nature off the throne of my life. And he no longer rules. And Jesus now rules. So when uh, I repent in sackcloth and ashes, I die at that moment. I die. But hallelujah, Jesus doesn't leave me dead. He resurrects me. How does he resurrect me? He resurrects me because he gives me a new heart. He gives me a born again experience. He makes a new person out of me. I become a new creation. So I die and I'm resurrected. Now people say, well listen, if that old man died in my repentance... How come I still have so much trouble with him? Practical question. Look at verse 11, and I'm going to use an illustration here to close with. Verse 11 says, Likewise, also reckon, I like the uh, New American Standard uses the word consider, also reckon or count or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, what is he saying when he says, consider yourself to be dead or count yourself to be dead? What he's really saying is that the old man is dead, but he's not dead, dead. He's still alive. But he says you may count him, reckon him, consider him to be dead. How do I consider him to be dead? You with me? Here is the human heart. And this is not operating, but you can imagine... All right, this is the human heart. And in the human heart, tell me what this is. Oh, you can see this better, am I right? All right. Tell me what this is. It's a throne. What do you do from a throne? Exactly. You give orders, am I right? Until you repented and you died the death. The person that was giving orders in your life was the carnal nature. It was your selfish you. Am I right? You were making the decisions. You were saying, you go do this and you do that and you do this. And you were doing it because your carnal nature was giving the orders. The problem is that you come to the place in your life at some point and you discover that if that carnal nature stays in that chair, he's going to kill you. And you cry out for help because you can't get rid of them. And Jesus comes in to your throne. Anybody want to guess what this is? It's a jail. And Jesus takes 
the old man off your throne and throws him in jail. And Jesus sits on your throne. Now, for all the theologians here, don't push illustrations too far. Okay, that's my disclaimer for whatever that's worth it. But this is, this is pretty clear. Jesus takes and he puts him in jail. If he's in jail, he's not been executed. He's not dead, dead. He's just in jail. He's been denied rulership. He's been denied the ability to reign over your life. He's been denied the throne and the decision-making powers. And Jesus takes that throne. But he's still there. And every once in a while, he cries out. And he says, remember me? Remember how, what a good time we had when we did such and such? Have you ever heard him? Well, if you would just let me out of here. By the way, who has the key to the jail? You have the key. And so in a moment of weakness and remembering all the pleasures and all that kind of thing, we, we said, well, yeah, I'd love to do that. And you unlock the door and he jumps out. Now, this new part you might not like, but it's what happens. He takes Jesus. And he puts Jesus in the jail, slams the door, climbs on the throne of your life and says, go do X, Y, and Z. And you go do it. And then you hear another voice say, you really happy about that? That really where you wanted to take your life? And you say, oh, Lord Jesus, how could I, what could I be so dumb as to do something like that? Because you have the key. You take the key and you unlock the door and Jesus comes out and grabs the old man, shoves him in there, slams the door. Now here's the, both the joy and the danger. The danger is that whoever stays in the jail is going to die in your life. That makes sense. I don't know about your old man, but I'll tell you what I want to do with my old man. I want to starve him to death. I want to get him to the place that he's comatose. He won't die, die until Jesus comes. And how do I keep him? How do I get him in a comatose state? That's why the church manual has standards of Christian lifestyle. They're not there to be legalistic, checklists. They're there to kill your old man. They're there to guard your eyes and guard your ears. They're there to protect your heart, as Proverbs says to young people, guard your heart. So you ought to deny him. You need to ask Jesus to run herd on what you look at and what you listen to. It, it, 
the, re the reason we have a thing in there about theaters is not because the popcorn is better there than it is at home. It's because of what they show there, and it corrupts Christian character. And you can corrupt Christian character in your home. Now, I wouldn't go there anyway, even if it was to see a good movie, if there is such a thing. Because I may give a wrong example to somebody else, and I don't want to do that. But it's not the theater itself. It's what goes in there. What are you putting in your mind? So my plea is guard your heart. Ask Jesus to help you guard your heart. Christian lifestyle is a wonderful thing. Get the old man until he's dead. The health message is a wonderful thing. People sometimes take it to extreme, and people get kind of warped. I tell people a cookie's not, you know, get it in the right drawer. Eating a cookie's not going to send you to hell, you know. Binging out on cookies day after day might be a problem, but you get my point. It's the principle of healthful living. I should talk about that another time, but... And don't be looking in other people's grocery baskets. Um, you, you, can't live, you can't eat a perfect diet in this world anyway, but you should try to do your best. One does not give the excuse to the other eat well, and try to use some common sense. Everything's covered in pesticides and everything's covered in everything and the whole world is a mess. And you could eat the healthiest diet in the world and you're still going to die unless Jesus comes pretty soon. But you should still try to take care of your health because that's a principle. The principle is health of living. And you may have to apply that principle different in everybody's life, but I should be committed to the principle of health of living. And the reason we have a health message is to help guard that old man. The reason we have all of these things. So I want to plead with you by the grace of God to consider the old man dead. And by the grace of the Lord Jesus, through your prayer life, through your study of God's word, keep him locked up. Don't give him power in your life. Don't let, him, don't let his selfish self sit on your throne. Because here's the danger. If you leave Jesus in this, the old man will make sure he gets starved to death. And if he stays there, he can't save you. Well, yes, question, and then I'm going to close this thing. Yeah, exactly what Abraham did with Hagar. And you give birth to sin, you give birth to a, a, a very difficult. And that's why so many Christians have struggles. is because they don't understand the necessity of keeping that old man under lock and key. And you do that. Don't feed him, heaven's sake. Don't feed the guy. <laughs> but we like to feed him sometimes because... He screams, and he yells, and he pleads, and he begs, and he works on your emotions. And he says, thank you. You deserve it. If you let me out, you deserve it. No. 
This guy will kill you. I'll end with this illustration. There's time, folk, you don't have mercy. Somebody should have said amen. You'll get it in just a moment. There's a guy walking along. It's a cold winter day, maybe in Michigan. I don't know. It's a cold winter day, and he's walking along, and he sees a rattlesnake, a really poisonous snake. And the snake looks at him and says, I'm cold. Please, please. I'm going to freeze to death if you just don't take me and put me inside your shirt where it's warm. Please. He says, no, you're a rattlesnake. <laughs> You'd kill me if I put you inside my shirt. I'm not going to put you inside my You're a rattlesnake. Oh, please. Think of how cold it is. I'm going to die if you don't please put me in your shirt. So you promise you won't bite me? You promise? Oh, I wouldn't do something. I wouldn't do something to somebody so nice as you to put me inside your shirt where it's warm. He says, okay. So he picks him up and he puts him inside his shirt. The rattlesnake gets nice and warm and comfortable. And after a while, the rattlesnake bites him. A guy pulls him out and throws him on the ground. He says, now I'm going to die. What did you do? You promised. You promised. The rattlesnake looks at him coldly. Says, you knew what I was when you picked me up. Have no mercy on the old man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us strength, O Lord. We're pitiful. We're weak. Our emotions are damaged. Our intellect is dark and our willpower is weakened. We need the mighty Savior, Father, the second Adam, the seed of the woman, to take his seat on the throne of our life, never to be removed by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.